Luke 14, verses 15 through 24. When one of those who were reclining at the table with him heard this, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man was giving a big dinner, and he invited many. And at the dinner hour, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is ready now. But they, all alike, began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I bought a piece of land. I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to try them out. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I've married a wife. And for that reason, I cannot come. The slave came back and reported this to his master. Then the head of the household became angry and said to his slave, Go out at once into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and crippled and blind and lame. The slave said, Master, what you've commanded has been done and still there's room. And the master said to the slave, Go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, None of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we look to you for wisdom and understanding. Pray, Holy Spirit, that you would teach us this morning as we read God's holy word. Ask that you would give us understanding and clarity. Lord, that you would change our hearts, that this Knowledge that is gained would change us. It wouldn't just result in inflated egos or pride or arrogance over what we know, as is so often the horrible case with the Pharisees of Jesus' day. Lord, humble us by these truths. Cause us to respond by Your grace in obedience. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you may have noticed, our text this morning is actually the continuation from our text from last week. So, you need to let me quickly get us all back up to speed on the context in which Jesus tells this parable. Make sure we're all on the same page here. At the end of Luke 13, Jesus told some Pharisees that nothing would deter him from his mission. He had been informed that Herod wanted Jesus killed. But Jesus wouldn't run away from Herod's district just because Herod was threatening his life. Instead, he would continue to teach, perform miracles and signs. He says, today and tomorrow. And then he says, on the third day, I will reach my goal. Now, Jesus wasn't there referring to literal days. One day, two days, third day. But instead, referring to a short period of time over which he would continue to do his earthly ministry, leading up to a final meeting with Jerusalem, which was quickly approaching. We're probably within just a few months from Jesus' crucifixion and his following resurrection. Jesus wasn't interested in preserving his own life. He knew that his life was in his Father's hands and that his death would come in accordance with God the Father's time, time, time plan predetermined plan, timetable. So he wasn't concerned about Herod's vain threats on his life. And so we find in Luke 14, Jesus doing exactly as he said he would be doing. But as we mentioned last time, what is a little bit surprising at first glance is where Jesus is doing this teaching, where Jesus is doing this healing. We find Jesus healing and teaching in a leading Pharisee's house. Now, it's not the only time that Jesus spent time among the Pharisees, but it is Increasingly odd as we consider that these were the very men that were seeking Jesus' life. They desired his death just as Herod did. It's the Sabbath, and Jesus has responded to an invitation to be present to eat bread with this Pharisee and some of his associates, relatives, and friends. Remember, this is that very segment of the Jewish society that is so adamantly desiring Jesus' death. We've already noted on a couple of occasions where they tried to arrest Jesus or they even tried 
to stone Jesus. So we're not surprised that we read this as we start to encounter this event, this moment, that those who were in attendance were observing Jesus. And if you remember from last week, we're maybe better translated scrutinizing Jesus, scrupulously looking at Jesus. The same word is used earlier in Luke's Gospel in Luke 6, 7, where it says this. The scribes and Pharisees were watching him closely. We're observing him. We're scrutinizing him. For what reason? To see if he healed on the Sabbath so they might find a reason to accuse him. And wouldn't you know it, here on this Sabbath, at this meal, suddenly a man with dropsy appears out of nowhere. And there he is before Jesus. Now, whether or not he was deliberately planted by the Pharisees, we can't be certain. But I believe that the narrative leans in that direction. The Pharisees would love to be able to catch Jesus in some legal infraction that they might bring charges against him. So I'm sure that they were waiting with bated breath as all of a sudden there's Jesus face to face with this man suffering from dropsy. Well, Jesus thwarts all of their evil scheming, doesn't he? For prior to doing anything with this man, he directs a question to his entire audience. He asks, is it lawful, is it permissible to heal on the Sabbath or not? Now, with this question, the dinner guests are hard-pressed to answer. Rabbinical legislation was pretty clear on the matter. Only deeds of mercy that were required to stave off death were permissible on the Sabbath. If the person's life wasn't in jeopardy, then you shouldn't engage in any sort of work, even it be a deed of mercy. But to say such words in this crowd might have appeared quite heartless. And had they planted this man, it would seem very odd that they had strung him along to come before Jesus. And now they're saying, yeah, you can't do anything for him. So I wonder what's all floating through their minds at this moment. All that we do know is that they would not answer Jesus a word. The scriptures provide a general principle to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. But certainly this wouldn't prohibit the doing of good on that day. Wouldn't good works and deeds of mercy be especially fitting for the Sabbath? Then Jesus catches the religious leaders in their own hypocrisy as he demonstrates how inconsistent they are on the matter. He says, if you have a son or an ox that fell into a pit, if his life wasn't in immediate danger, would you just walk away and come back the next day? He says, no way. You'd get him out of the pit immediately. Pharisees began by not being willing to respond to Jesus' question in verse 4. And then in verse 6, we're told that they were not able to answer Jesus' question. They are left silent before Jesus. But Jesus is far from done with them. He's not done yet. These arrogant, selfish hypocrites need to be confronted. And while they've been watching Jesus, Jesus has been watching them. And what he's observed, now he begins to unpack, much to the chagrin of these religious elites. While united in common opposition to Jesus, these men were far from being a tight-knit, loving, charitable group. What they had in common was a common hatred for Jesus. But they didn't love one another either, as Jesus goes on to describe. Their pride and lack of humility was seen in their vying for the chief seats at the dinner. Everyone sought to exalt themselves. No one was looking out for the interests of others. Everyone was concerned with his own personal status and his own personal honor. So Jesus tells them a parable. The point of which was not so much as to merely give a counter-ethic or instruct them merely in a matter of manners, but to declare the principle by which the kingdom of heaven operates. Jesus summarizes this in verse 11, where he says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus makes very plain here, no one's going to push and shove their way into the kingdom of God. It's by invitation only. And only those who are poor in spirit, who acknowledge their spiritual bankruptcy, that recognize that they justly deserve punishment, and realize their own inability to save themselves, only these are properly positioned for being exalted in the coming kingdom. These are granted pardon and a place at God's table. They're granted eternal life. Meanwhile, all those who are exalting themselves will be ultimately humiliated as they face final judgment and are given the wages of their sin, death, eternal death. When it comes right down to it, as we posited last time, 
What's required here, oddly enough, amongst, amongst a group of prideful, arrogant, supposed know-it-alls, is right knowledge. Right knowledge known rightly. It's an interesting thing how intelligence and knowledge goes. It can be something that stands so much against our proper spiritual growth, and it can be something that is the very means by which spiritual growth occurs. Right knowledge known rightly is that which leads to genuine humility. Any man who really knows himself, who is genuinely transparent about his own heart, who has come to recognize who God truly is in His infinite majesty and holiness, and has come to recognize what Christ has done in this astounding, merciful work performed in and through the cross and His resurrection. A person who knows all those things can never be a proud man. That is the most humbling of things to truly know. Then Jesus turns His gaze upon the hosts of this occasion. He challenges this man's method of invitation. Those who have means to exercise hospitality should do so not only in reference to family and relative and rich neighbors, but they should do it in reference to the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. So when you do this just for all of your rich buddies and these people who have better status within the community than yourself even, all you're doing is giving to get. You're giving to those who can reciprocate the deed in some form or fashion. Jesus' point is this. Hospitality for personal benefit is no indication of righteousness. It's no indication of genuine love. It's merely exchange. It's just another form of self-love. Jesus exposes the lovelessness that is present within this audience. Now let's pause right there. That's where we ended last time, right? Can you imagine what that scene must have been like? Jesus is invited to this banquet table. He's sitting there among these religious elites. They've been scrutinizing him. He's just healed a man with dropsy. He sent him away. And now he's proceeded to expose the hypocrisy, the arrogance, the pride that's present within these religious leaders. I bet you could cut the tension in that room with a knife. Jesus has blasted through all the pretensions of the ceremony. And the one who was supposedly under examination is in reality the chief examiner. He has laid bare the intentions of the guests and the host. He has exposed their preoccupation with themselves. He's exposed their hypocrisy, their lack of charity. And I wonder if an awkward silence settled over the gathering. I mean, what do you say in such a moment? Ever had a moment like that in your own life? Where maybe it's a semi-public gathering and a semi-public rebuke was offered? Maybe you felt some of the awkward, tense, strained silence following such words? I mean, we might hope that these men, after having heard this rebuke, would admit their sin, would beg for forgiveness, and come savingly to trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. But as it seems, repentance was surely lacking. The next best thing we could hope for is maybe they would just remain silent. But how long could such a silence persist? So someone ventures forth. We're told in verse 15 that a certain man reclining at the table with Jesus, having heard these words, said to Jesus, Blessed is he shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. The statement I kind of chuckle at, it sounds like a, you know appropriate sort of attempt at an icebreaker. It seems quite pious. It has religious concern. He's picking up on some of the things that Jesus has previously said. Remember, Jesus says, when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, since they don't have means to repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So you're going to be blessed when? At the resurrection of the righteous. So now this man, hearing these words, erupts with this statement, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. In this man's words, I think I detect an attempt at trying to find some common ground with Jesus' tough statements. I mean, Jesus has just openly rebuked the entire group that he's dining with. 
So how does the conversation reset? I wonder if this man just was seizing here upon a hope that certainly was shared in common between Jesus and the rest of the fellow guests, right? Certainly Jesus would agree with this statement. There couldn't be anything wrong found with this statement. Well, the answer is yes and no. There was the common hope of the coming banquet around God's table, where God's people would eat bread and delight themselves in God's presence for all eternity. Ryan read for us this morning in Isaiah 25. What a beautiful prophecy that is. What a glorious thing we're looking forward to, isn't it? Listen to it again. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain. A banquet of aged wine, choice pieces and marrow, and refined aged wine. And on this mountain He will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces. And He will remove the reproach of His people from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, Blessed this, behold, this is our God for whom we have waited that He might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in His salvation. Matthew 8.11 speaks to the same thing. I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. We see in Revelation 19.9, right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. You see, a day is coming when all of this will come to fruition, complete and utter consummation. But where this man has erred was in the presumption that he and his companions would share in this blessing. Yes, indeed, whoever will eat bread in the kingdom of God certainly is blessed. Absolutely. That's true. But the problem was that this man and his associates were in danger of missing out on the final feast because they refused to enter into the banquet right now. Should they continue to think entrance into the banquet was a completely, utterly future event, they would find themselves without a seat in God's banquet hall. The kingdom of God had come roaring into the present. It was at hand. And God's servants were making straightforward, plain proclamation regarding that fact. The refusal of these religious leaders to enter would mean their own destruction. So Jesus will not let up. He exposes the fact And please hear this, friends, that not everyone who speaks of heaven is actually going there. Not everyone who speaks of this coming future wonderful banquet will actually have a place at that table. So Jesus presents yet another parable. The sermon entitled, You're Invited. You're Invited. I'd like to utilize three markers to walk us through this text. First of all, we'll see a gracious invitation, a gracious invitation, followed by, number two, an inexcusable rejection, an inexcusable rejection, and thirdly, a magnanimous inclusion, a magnanimous inclusion. First of all, let's consider how God has offered, number one, a gracious invitation. We see this in verses 15 through 17. Now, from the outset of the parable, we're told that a certain man was preparing a great banquet. Now, the size of the banquet would be roughly proportional to the guest list. Invitations had already been delivered. The host had invited, we're told, or called, many. He's a generous host. This becomes very important that these men are already invited Because it would make little sense to invite them after you've already prepared for the banquet. (laughs) How many animals are we going to have to slaughter? How much food are we going to have to prepare? How many tables are going to need to be set? These RSVPs must have already been gathered. There's a lot that goes into a big banquet. They would need to know how many were coming. Anyone experienced planning for a big dinner? Anyone planned for a wedding? Anyone plan for a retirement party or a 50th birthday or anniversary? Anybody plan for a work luncheon? How about a Seder celebration? 
Make sure you RSVP, by the way. Anybody ever planned for one of these things? It takes considerable time and effort. The RSVPs have already been sent in. They know who's coming. So what's being pictured here? Well, everything's now ready. It's now the hour of the banquet. It's time to enjoy. So since everything is now ready, the master of the house sends his slave out to inform everyone that the hour of the banquet has come. It's time. Notice, this is not a surprise. The slave is going to those who had already been called, already been invited, to let them know that everything is now set. It's akin to ringing the dinner bell and say, come and get it. It's time to eat. Now, this two-part invitation is not so unusual given the situ- their situation in history, especially. Preparing for a banquet such as this would require not only advanced information regarding the guest list, but also a lot of preparation the day of. Not like today where we could maybe do some things in advance, right? We've got nice refrigeration technology, all sorts of other things. I mean, you've got a big to-do the day of the banquet. So often you'd RSVP and you'd say, yes, I'll be there. And then the banquet would be announced when it was time to come and celebrate. Everyone is made generally ready regarding the arrival of the banquet, but its precise time would be announced via messenger. By the way, this is similar. We see this very example seen in the book of Esther. When Esther goes to prepare a banquet, she first asks if the king would come and then sends out her servant when the banquet is ready to bring them to the banquet. This is what has been done. And now a summons has been called. Everything is prepared. Come and get it. I believe it's certainly no accident that Jesus chose a banquet as the setting for this parable. I cautioned us before that we have to be careful when we interpret Jesus' parables in particular. We can't press every detail in a parable into some other spiritual meaning. It would, it would thereby allegorize something that should be more understood as more illustrative than an allegory. However, it would be equally wrong to fail to see what spiritual connections Jesus is intending to communicate through the use of parables. Uh, parabole to throw beside the idea is that there is something beyond just the nitty gritty of this particular parable that is actually being communicated through it. So there are spiritual truths being communicated. What are those? And how do we come to a determination regarding that? Well, as always, context is key to interpretation. Jesus, remember, is sitting at a dinner. He's already told the parable about sitting at a wedding feast. A certain man has just spoken about the blessedness of sitting in the kingdom of God, in eating. And now Jesus tells another parable in which a banquet has been prepared and is awaiting the arrival of the guests. Jesus intends to teach something about this great eschatological banquet, this banquet at the end of all time, which the Pharisees assume to be totally future. Meanwhile, Jesus is pointing out through this parable that people are right now being summoned to the banquet. There is an already not yet aspect to the kingdom of God. You see, these religious leaders should have been extra prepared for this summons, right? They had already been invited to the banquet by the steady flow of revelation that was granted by the prophets in the Old Testament. Remember, everything in the Old Testament ultimately points to Jesus. This is why Jesus rebuked these leaders so sternly in John 5, verse 39, when he said, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. They had already been invited. Jesus is summoning for them to come and enjoy the banquet. After his resurrection, Jesus told the disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe and all of the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. These men have been invited already. They're now being summoned. But instead of finding a people who were expectant and ready for the summons, the slave is met with, point number two, an inexcusable rejection. An inexcusable rejection. Excuses, excuses, excuses. It's the climactic moment. It's time for the banquet. And now everyone begins to make excuses. It's like being the no-show after you've RSVP'd. The excuses were provided, I assume, are just the tip of the iceberg. Some have pointed that they're horticultural, agricultural, and matrimonial. 
Or if you like alliterative schemes, land, livestock, and love. The first said, I bought a field and I'm obligated to go out and see it. Second says, I bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to prove or test them out. The third says, I've married a wife and for this I'm not able to come. It's interesting, in the first two excuses, the guy says, would you please request myself be excused? The third guy says, I've married a wife. He just doesn't even ask. He just said, I'm not going to be there. I'm not going to be in attendance. I wonder if there's anything behind that. All these excuses, though, have a hollow ring to them, don't they? I mean, who goes and buys a field without having looked at it first? Who buys a yoke of oxen, much less five yoke of oxen, and doesn't test them first? Since when does marrying a wife prevent one from attending a banquet? It's been noted that there's some resemblances in these excuses to the exceptions that were given in the book of Deuteronomy regarding military service. Deuteronomy 20, verses 5-7. through The officers also shall speak to the people, saying, Who is the man who has built a new house and has not dedicated it? Let him depart and return to his house, otherwise he might die in the battle and another man would dedicate it. Who is the man who has planted a vineyard and has not be- begun to use its fruit? Let him depart and return to his house, otherwise he might die in the battle and another man would begin to use its fruit. And who is the man who is engaged to a woman and has not married her? Let him depart and return to his house, otherwise he might die in battle and another man would marry her. Again, this picks up again in Deuteronomy 24.5. When a man takes a new wife, he shall not go out with the army nor be charged with any duty. He shall be free at home one year and shall give happiness to his wife whom he has taken. But how could attending a feast be compared with military service? The idea of that legislation was to free a man from military service, not isolate him from social interaction. Attending this feast didn't come with it any danger of death and therefore some inability to enjoy a house or vineyard or wife. And while marriage certainly involves new obligations, it does not cancel out all others. I'm going to ask the question, why not ask if you can take your wife along? Enjoy the evening together. Verse 18 includes the Greek phrase, apa mias. Literally meaning from one, from one, which is variously translated all alike, all with one mind, all with one accord, all with one consent, one by one. The idea is that everywhere the servant went, he found a unified rejection. They may have a variety of particular reasons, but the end result was the same. They were all not coming. They ended up saying that their lives were much too important to attend this feast and they didn't care about all the preparations that already had been made. Understand that while we might feel hurt in our society today if someone snubbed us in that way, understand it's ramped up huge in that culture of honor and shame. To not show up to the banquet when you said you'd be there, to offer up excuses of any sort, much less lame ones, So rude. It was so uncaring. Spurgeon asks the following, Is it not strange that when the householder gave so great a supper, when he offered it without money, without price, that all his neighbors should with one consent begin to make excuse? He didn't call them to prison. He didn't call them to misery. How then came they to be so unwilling to obey his summons? to see the connection with the gospel, don't we? To think about being saved by grace alone, through faith alone. To not purchase it with anything you've done. To not be as a result of merited works. Why do people flee from such an offer? Why do people reject such a marvelous summons? Well, this slave reports back to the master. And ooh, is he hot. We're told the master finds out about the rejection of his banquet, which is now all ready, and he becomes angry. We can understand the righteous indignation that would arise at this moment. This man's generosity and graciousness has been discarded by those invited. His preparations were all for naught. Much food would go bad. Those who had been prepared for had spurned the gracious appeals of the master of this house. And we read in verse 24 the consequences of such a rejection. 
Verse 24, I, for I tell you that none of those having been invited men will taste my banquet. Something very interesting about this last verse in this passage, verse 24. For I tell you. We've noted before the specificity of the Greek language when it comes to pronouns. Tremendously helpful in this case. You might assume here that this is a singular you, but it's actually plural. This particular address is made to y'all, to you all, to the you plural. Jesus has told this parable, remember, to him. Remember this man made a statement and Jesus responds by telling a parable, we're told, to him. And then this master is talking to his slave. The whole time he's to him. And now all of a sudden we get this, not only you, but you all. I tell you all. Who is the you all? Well, there's two possibilities, I think. It could be a statement made by the master of the house to the servant and now others that are at the banquet. And if that's the case, what's saying here is this is the end of the parable. And this master is saying, none of those guys who refuse to come will touch a morsel of this food. If there's any leftovers, they're not getting any of it. I'm not sending any takeout orders. There's no doggy bags going home. None of those guys will taste of this banquet. Or, it could instead be a direct statement made by Jesus to all the Pharisees who were reclining around him, pressing home the point of the parable, you self-righteously presume you'll be present at the banquet, but you won't be. And you won't enjoy. You won't eat from this table. I lean towards the latter. I think Jesus is addressing the Pharisees and religious leaders who are reclined all about him. And he suddenly steps out of the parable into direct address. He emphatically declares that refusing to come when summoned will result in being excluded from, Jesus says here, my banquet. From Jesus' banquet. You won't eat in that heavenly banquet if you won't come to me. Hendrickson says it this way, Refusal to accept God's gracious invitation of salvation by grace through faith will result in being excluded from the blessings and joys of the new heaven and earth, the kingdom in its consummation, the church triumphant. I think here we begin to see the design of Jesus' parable. He sets up a scenario in which a group of invited guests decline the summoning to a great banquet. They come up with a variety of excuses but all of them share in common ultimate refusal to come. You know, if someone had enough money to go and buy a field without even looking at it, and he had enough money to buy five pair of oxen without testing them, certainly couldn't this rich guy send out a servant to go test those things out and show up to the banquet? Or couldn't he just wait for the next day? I mean, the land's going to be there tomorrow. The oxen will be there the next day. I find this particularly interesting. You guys remember, what was behind a lot of the pharisaical preoccupation with the Sabbath? Well, can't you put it off for a day? Can't you put that deed of mercy off for a day? Meanwhile, Jesus says, well, these people are making excuses not coming into my banquet, which is ready now. Can't you put off these other earthly concerns for a day and come to the banquet? Ultimately, the point is that no excuse is acceptable. And the end result is that the master of the house becomes angry and vows to exclude the no-shows from tasting any of the supper he's prepared. Yes, indeed, those who are there eating will be blessed, but you won't be among them. This is Jesus' words to these self-righteous, arrogant Pharisees. They won't take, get a taste of this food unless they respond to the summoning that Jesus is making. Sounds so familiar. Is not this a picture of these Israelite leaders in their rejection of Jesus? They've been informed regarding the Christ. They had the prior invitation already. They had all the words of the prophets and all the promises of the Old Testament. And now that the preparations for the Messiah had been completed, the climactic moment had come. John the Baptist announced the coming of the Messiah, the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world, and then pointed to Jesus Jesus had now performed signs and wonders and astounded everyone by his teaching and by his authority. 
And the Pharisees respond by flatly rejecting the summons to come. Together, John and Jesus had said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's the hour of the kingdom. Come. They're they're summoning people in. God the Father was summoning His people to come and eat, to partake of Jesus Christ, to savingly trust in His Son. But these leaders worked hard to find any excuse to reject the summoning. They regarded what they already had as more desirable than the feast God was beckoning them to. You see, the ultimate ground of their refusal, as every man's rejection of Christ is, was that they felt no real desire. They saw nothing attractive about the feast that God had prepared. They had no real reverence for the host. And they considered their present state better than the one that was being offered to them. Calvin explains, well, this disease is universally prevalent. So that hardly one person in a hundred can be found who prefers the kingdom of God to fading riches or any other kind of advantages. Though all are not infected with the same disease, every man is led away by his desires, in consequence of which all are wandering in various directions. And since all three of the excuses that are offered here by Jesus deal with commercial and family life, it seems to fit very well with what Jesus will address next in Luke 14. Let's always beware of not allowing love for possessions or domestic ties in such a way as to interfere with total commitment to the call to discipleship. This is why Jesus can make those really strong, hard statements in the rest of Luke 14. Look at those next time. The point is that God's kingdom must take precedence over everything else. Therefore, no excuse is valid. Philip Ryken said the following, People always have some reason or another for staying away from Jesus. But what business could possibly be more important than making sure that you have eternal life? What property could be more valuable than to have a title to heaven? And what relationship could ever be more important than the one you have can have with the God who made you and sent his son to die for your sins? Ryle warns, it's not a vowed dislike for the gospel, which is much to be feared. It is that procrastinating, excuse-making spirit, which is always ready with a reason why Christ cannot be served today. Infidelity and immorality no doubt slay their thousands, but decent, plausible, smooth-spoken excuses slay their tens of thousands. No excuse can justify a man in refusing God's invitation and not coming to Christ. It is not only open disobedience to God's law, but also excessive attention to things lawful that can ruin a man's soul. Spurgeon, in his sermon, A Bad Excuse is Worse Than None, debunks several excuses that people give for not coming to Christ. He considers the following, I am too busy. I am too good to need saving. I am too bad to be saved. It's too good to be true. It's too late for me. It's too early for me. Excuses abound. And Spurgeon demonstrates how each of these might be dealt with. One example. It's it's too soon for me. I have plenty of time. I'm not going to respond now. The summons is here, but I'm going to put this off. I'll wait till later. Spurgeon replies, have you been to a graveyard? Haven't you found young people buried there? Would they think it was too soon to consider eternity? Also, is it ever too soon to be happy? If religion made you miserable, I might advise you to put it off to the last. But inasmuch as to be in Christ is to be happy, you cannot be in Him too soon. I have sat by many deathbeds and heard many regrets, but never did I hear a Christian regret that he was converted too soon. If I were condemned to die and anyone would bring me a pardon, I should not think that I received it too soon. The wrath of God abideth on you. Can it be too soon to escape from it? You are the subject of daily temptations and daily add to your sins. Can it be too soon to have a new heart and a right spirit? But should you hold to your excuses, you will have no part in the coming banquet. You will not taste of the great banquet of God if you reject the summons of God the Son, 
If you reject Christ's invitation to come unto Him, then you will forfeit participation in the future consummation of the kingdom. No excuse will hold water in the day of judgment. You will be silent on that day. The Master's further response to this inexcusable rejection, get this, is not only a holy, righteous anger towards these who have spurned His invitation, but simultaneously, at the same moment where He's exhibiting His holy wrath, He's also throwing open the doors to others that they might fill His house. He's not going to allow His banquet to be postponed, and He's not going to let it go to waste. So He makes, point number three, a magnanimous inclusion. Magnanimous inclusion. You see this in verses 21 through 23. In his righteous wrath, the master did not forget to show mercy as well. He tells his slave to go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the city. The time has come, so there's no time to waste. He's to move with haste into the city streets, search out the poor, find the crippled, lead the blind, carry the lame, and bring them into the bank. I'm sure it's no coincidence that these are the very people that Jesus had just challenged this host to invite to his parties. The slave responds that this has been done. They come and there's still room. So the master broadens the invitation further. Go into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in. Why? Because the master wants his house filled. He wants to extend blessing far and wide. He cares nothing about social standing, nothing about heritage, nothing about nationality, nothing about background. The invitation is open to all who will come. And this is a worthwhile work that this slave will be engaged in. Notice the way that the master instructs this slave to deal with these broadening segments of society. He says, bring or lead the poor, crippled, blind, and lame into my feast. Interesting. They summoned these others. But now, he's speaking of leading or bringing them into the feast on a physical level. This might be quite simply answered why this description, because the crippled and blind and lame would literally need to be led. Maybe by hand. Maybe carried. The Master says, spend the effort required to bring them, to lead them. They're worth it. Anyone who wants to come should have the assistance they need to get here. Then the slave is told to compel the ones out on the highway and along the hedges to come in. This compelling is not a reference to physical force. By the way, some throughout church history have attempted to, to justify actions of physical force against people to convert them from this passage. Not at all what Jesus is speaking to. To compel them is an indication here that some amount of convincing may be required. Remember, these individuals would would not necessarily know the slave's master. They might not be acquainted with him as people in the city would be. They also might not believe that such an offer was actually genuine. What are you talking about? Why would he want me at his banquet? Sounds too good to be true. So the master tells his slave to be winsome, to be enthusiastic, to be diligent, to be persistent when inviting these from out of town. Edersheim says it well. They're being invited by a Lord whom they had not known, perhaps never heard of before, to a city in which they were strangers, and to a feast for which they were wholly unprepared, required special urgency, a constraining to make them either believe it or come to it from where the messengers found them and that without preparing for it by dress or otherwise. We must remember when we're dealing with unconverted men who are dead in their sins, who need the Holy Spirit to open their eyes to gospel truth, that we need to cry aloud and press the gospel upon their notice, pleading all the while that the Lord would draw them and grant them repentance and faith. We ought not find it surprising. We might need to spend extra time with such individuals who are not acquainted with who God really is. How wonderful to think that God not only makes this invitation, but He addresses even man's slothfulness and hesitancy, arousing men from spiritual lethargy and slothfulness 
with exhortations and warnings. Make no mistake about this. What makes this such a worthwhile work is that the master will fill his house. And all that rebounds back to the riches of the master's generosity. You see, the broadening of the summoning of others to come to the banquet makes a very, very interesting parallel with the spread of the gospel. Remember, Jesus was criticized by the religious leaders for spending so much time with the undesirables, with the untouchables, with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes. Perhaps Jesus' reference to including these out in the highways and along the hedges, or I'm sorry, perhaps Jesus' reference to the lame and blind and crippled and poor picture Jesus' present ministry. The very thing that he's being accused of doing is the very thing he's engaged in wholeheartedly. They had rejected his summons, and so he's calling in the people from the, the streets and alleys. And then the people out on the highways and hedges may refer to those outside the city, outside of Jerusalem, or outside of Israel proper. It may indicate the intention of God the Father to spread news of the gospel, of the, of the banquet, to the diaspora, to the dispersed Jews, and perhaps the Gentiles. The servant doesn't say immediately respond to, to uh, the master by saying this has already been done, like the first group which he has spoken to, which may make this identification of the group even more likely to be the Gentiles. This is indeed the way the gospel would spread following Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus' disciples would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the remotest parts of the earth. This is the flow of the book of Acts, tracing that very spread. We also have read this morning Ephesians 2. What a glorious text. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were, were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which was performed in the flesh by human hands, Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ. You were out on the highways. You were out along the hedges, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you were, for, you were formerly far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. What unending joy, knowing that Christ will build His church. That He has gone to prepare a place for His bride, and He will fill His house. Don't take my word for it. Revelation 7, verses 9-10. through 10. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And then at the end of Revelation, near the very end of Revelation, Revelation 19, verses 6 through 9, listen to this description. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to Him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then He said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Whose banquet is it? It's Jesus's. And he said to me, these are true words of God. You've been invited. You're being summoned. So come. I'd like to close with a specific request to you as a church family. Over the past couple of weeks, several of you have helped in putting together and assembling some Easter bags, some Resurrection Sunday bags. And we've got them, maybe you saw them as you walked in this morning on a table off there uh, to your left as you're walking out. Inside of those bags, there is an ESV New Testament as well as the ESV on MP3 CD. 
Uh, we also assembled and included our kind of homemade What's So Good About Friday tracks. And the bags also have an informational brochure on the church and on our school, as well as an invitation, providential, an invitation to join us for Resurrection Sunday. So here we are in our chronological, roughly chronological survey of the Gospels, and we come to this text which speaks about a banquet and the importance of invitations and the importance of summoning people to come in. Ultimately, this is all picturing not of coming to church, but of coming to Christ. But certainly, certainly, we can use this opportunity to invite people to come to church. Here's a very practical way that you can give an invitation this week. We've taken sets of 25 bags and wrapped them in ribbon. I'd like for all, every family to take one of those home with you today, a set of 25, and distribute them within your community. If you're in an apartment complex, distribute the apartments. If you're wherever you happen to be living, find 25 people to give these away to. And my encouragement would be it becomes a great opportunity to maybe meet your neighbors if you've never met them, to actually knock on the door and wait for them to come and give it to them, and then ask them if they'd like to come or engage them in a discussion about the gospel, even better. If for some reason or another you can't do that, at least you can distribute these bags at each door that you come to. Remember, we have the best of news to share. Jesus Christ not only died that our sins might be forgiven, but he rose again from the dead. Conquering sin and death and securing for God a people for God's own possession. And one day we will rejoice as the full consummation of history comes to close. And people from every tribe, tongue, and nation are gathered together around that marriage supper of the Lamb. Oh, what a blessing. This guy's words are true as far as they go. It is the most huge blessing to be invited to that banquet. To be present at that banquet. Let's redouble our efforts to declare to others as well that they're invited also. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this wonderful invitation. It really does sound too good to be true. To think that you offer forgiveness of sins and cleansing and eternal life and it's not something we can purchase with money or through our merit through our merit. Thank you for the glory of the gospel that doesn't give us a list of to-dos in order to earn salvation, but declares it is done, it is finished in Christ. We know that any and every day is an appropriate day for salvation. Why put off this? any longer. Lord, especially with this time of year, this contemplation of Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday are in our minds. Help us to be ready to give a defense for the hope that is within us. To proclaim the truth of the Gospel. To share the good news. To summon others to come into the banquet. To be granted eternal life. Lord, we pray that you would do this by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.